Yahweh, we just thank you for this night, and we thank you for another book as we dive in. And um, I just pray that as we approach this new book, a book that we don't often cover or talk about or read in, that you just give us the understanding to digest this, to apply it to our life, and really ask the question, what does it mean um, to return back to the land of the promised land, and what does it mean to act differently in that land? In Jesus' name, amen. We are in Ezra and Nehemiah, but in the Hebrew, it's Nehemiah. This is one book. And your Bible is split into two different books, but that was not the way that it was originally set up. The titles of the book come from the primary characters of Ezra, Nehemiah. These are the main characters that most of the text is focused on during this time period of them returning back to the promised land. This was originally one single book. But Origen, one of the early church fathers who lived around 184 AD, divided the book into two separate books. And he called it First and Second Ezra. Or also in the Greek, it's a Cedras. The name Nehemiah was not a part of these two books, even though Nehemiah was included in it. It was Jerome, who later coming along and wrote the Vulgate, or the Latin translation of the Bible, who renamed these books Ezra and Nehemiah. And that is what we have traditionally in our Bible, is the Latin Vulgate's division of these two books and their naming of Ezra and Nehemiah. However, when you read it, it's very clear that they're both connected to each other. In fact, the first six chapters are the first return back to Israel. The second set of chapters, the second half of Ezra, is Ezra leading them back to Israel. And then we get to Nehemiah, and it's Nehemiah leading them back to Israel. Yet Ezra is a contemporary of Nehemiah in that, and he shows up at the very end. So the fact that Ezra is showing up at the very end as a contemporary, working together with Nehemiah to lead the people, shows that these are supposed to be seen as one book. So they're going to be treated as one book as we're going through here because the themes, well, because it was originally written as one book, and the narrator or the author sees it as one story as he connects these ideas. The setting of the story, we've already kind of talked about that the Assyrians and the Babylonians came and sacked Israel and Judah and took them into exile. And then under Persian, Cyrus II, the Persian Empire, Cyrus let them all return. We've already kind of talked about that with the book of Daniel. So to get more specific here, we're dealing a little bit after Daniel. Remember, at the very end of Daniel, Daniel is living in 539 B.C., and he's asking God in chapter 10, will this be the end of the physical exile? Will you be allowing them to return? Little did he know that very year, Cyrus II would give an edict to allow them to return back to the promised land. So that's kind of where we set up here. The Babylonians have been ruling over the world as we know it, or as they know it actually. And they have all the Jews as captives. In 550 B.C., Cyrus II becomes the new king of the Persian kingdom, and then he begins to sack the Median Empire and the Babylonian empires and taking over and building the Persian Empire. In 539, he becomes the Persian Empire, ruling over Babylon after he had just conquered them, 
which ends with chapter 6 of Daniel, of Belshazzar being conquered. In that exact same year, Cyrus gives an edict allowing all the Jews to return back to the promised land. When they return, they're going to return to Judah only. When they return, they're going to return to Judah. But remember, all of Judah and Israel has now been divided up by the Assyrians. They divided it up all into these little mini districts that the Assyrians control. When the Babylonians came and took over, they didn't change these districts in any kind of a way. When the Persians came along, they're not changing these districts. So these are the districts left over from the Assyrian Empire ruling. Now Judah is this little plot of land, way smaller than Judah ever used to be before the Assyrians came and the Babylonians. And now the Israelites are not even there. The northern tribes are not even there. So now when they return, they're just going to return to this little plot of land. Now there are still some Jews that were left behind in Judah. Remember when the Babylonians came, they only took the wealthy and the noble and that kind of stuff. But the poorest of poor and the prophet Jeremiah were left behind to stay in that land. So they still kind of maintained a Jewish presence in Judah during this time period of the Babylonian Empire. Where the north, which would later become known it was, which became the district of Samaria, that was during the time of Second Kings chapter 17 when the Assyrians came and sacked them. They took all the Israelites out of that region and they put new people in there from all over the world. Those people worshipped idols. Now eventually, the prophets sent people to teach them how to worship Yahweh in that land according to chapter 17 of Second Kings. But what they did was they just added Yahweh to all the other gods that they worshipped. So many of the people, what we know in the district of Samaria, are partly Jewish and part other nations, intermixed with each other over the last 70 years. So they're a part Jewish and part um, other different nations. There seems to be a lot of them that worship pagan gods. Some of them may not. Some are syncretistic. Some are not. We don't know exactly sure. This is the district of Samaria. Now, over the next couple hundred years, they will change and evolve. And by the time we get to the Gospels, they'll be what we know as the Samaritans. And so there'll be that group of people. But Judah in the south is left pretty much intact with pretty much a strong um, Jewish population. It is to that region that they're going to return. Now, they're going to return in three different ways. The first return is 539 B.C. And this is going to be under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is going to lead them back and this is pretty much going to be chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra. Then there will be a second return led by Ezra in 458 BC. And these are pretty much chapters 7 through 10 of the book of Ezra. So the first half of Ezra is the first return. And the second half of Ezra is the second return with about an 80 year difference between these two different returns. So Ezra, which the book is named after, doesn't actually come into the picture until chapter 7 and about 80 years after the beginning of the book. Then the third return is led by Nehemiah in 445 B.C., so just a few years after Ezra's return, about a decade. 
he'll return. That will be the first half of the book of Nehemiah. The last half of Nehemiah then becomes the restoration. This is kind of a summary of Ezra restoring the people through a covenant renewal, Nehemiah restoring the people through a covenant renewal, and kind of an evaluation of the Jewish character of this time period. So these are kind of major divisions. The book of Esther takes place right between the first six chapters in the book of Ezra and then the second set of chapters of Ezra. So she takes place right in the middle. So in the 80-year gap, that's where Esther comes into the picture. We only have three books left that we're going to cover in the historical narrative section of the First Testament. And that is Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So chronologically speaking, you have Zerubbabel leading them in the first six chapters of Ezra. Then, chronologically speaking, the book of Esther happens. And then chronologically, you have the last chapters, 7 through 10, of Ezra with the second return under Ezra. And then you have the book of Nehemiah with the third return. So that's the chronological structure of these final three narrative books as we go through this. What is the purpose of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? The first and primary purpose of these two books, or this one book, depending on how you want to look at it, is to show how Yahweh is faithful to continue to use his people and to restore his chosen people as he promised through Moses and the prophets. According to the Mosaic Law, God can technically be done with them. The Mosaic Law said, if you obey, then I will bless you. And they violated it big time. And according to the law, the law only brings death. The law only brings exile because none of us can meet any of the requirements of the law. So according to the law of God, he's done with them. There's no reason to honor any of its promises. There's no reason to restore them to the land in any kind of way. They violated the covenant. However, God made promises to Israel that he would make them into great nation under the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis chapter 15. Then, in Deuteronomy chapter 29 through 30, God made a restoration covenant where he basically said, you will violate the Mosaic covenant and you will be punished. And technically, that will be the end of our covenant together. But because of my promises to Abraham, I will make another covenant with you where I will promise to restore you after you violate the Mosaic Covenant and renew the Mosaic Covenant with you. So that is what allows him, that's what compels him to basically return them to the land and remain faithful to them even though they were not faithful to him because of his character. And this is the point that the author of Hebrews is going to make is that it's because of God's character and his promises that he keeps pursuing us. This is also the point that Zechariah and Haggai are going to make is this, and Hosea also made this. Over and over and over again, they basically say legally and covenantally, God has every right to abandon us. But his character and his promises don't allow that. His character does not allow him. He cannot violate his character. And so he continues to pursue us, and he continues to use us despite that. And so this is a powerful testimony to Yahweh's character I mean, we went through the kings and how jacked up evil they were. And they were said to be worse than the Canaanites. And yet, God is restoring them. And God is going to keep using Ezra and Nehemiah 
and many other people after that. And so this is one of the most major purposes of this book. Eugene Merrill said this, The books of Ezra and Nehemiah reflect some of the bleakest and most difficult days of Israel's long Old Testament history. Though the exile was over and a remnant people was in process of rebuilding the superstructures of the national life, the prospects for success paled in comparison to the Halicon days of the past when Davidic kingdom dominated the entire Eastern Mediterranean world. What was needed was a word of encouragement, a message of hope in God, who had once blessed his people above all nations of the earth and who had promised to do it so again. The great theological theme of the books lies then precisely in this nexus between the ancient promises of Yahweh and the present and future expectations of his chosen people. The post-exilic community was small, but it's God who is great. Reliance on such a God will assure a future more glorious than anything the days gone by. Now that's important because Israel is absolutely pathetic compared to what they were before the exile. They're this dinky little city-state left over, this ragtag people who are left behind of poverty, this ragtag that's returning back, and an incredible opposition that is opposing them, and no structure to rebuild their lives in this new land. And 70 years of just being pummeled by the foreigners under judgment from God and exile and being refugees and all this kind of stuff. And yet, God is going to do amazing things here and restore them. A secondary purpose of these two books is showing that the exile had not changed the people and that what they really needed was a new heart if they were to become what Yahweh had redeemed them to be. We are going to see that when they return, nothing changes. Smashing them into the ground, the judgment from God, Exile does not change them in any kind of way. Within one generation, they're returning back to their old promises. They're so committed to be right this time and not screw it up. And yet they'll go back into it. Now, largely as a nation, they will never nationalistically be idolaters ever again. There will be a few individuals here and there. And as Hellenism comes into the picture later in the future, some of that will happen. But largely as a nation, they will not wholesale go into idolatry like they had. And by the time we get to the time of Christ, there is no idolatry. In fact, they're so committed to anti-idolatry, they're going to kill Jesus for claiming to be connected to God in a special kind of a way. That will cure them. But that wasn't the big issue. Because what they're going to end up doing is they're going to be so obsessed with not returning back to exile again that they realize that what caused this was their lack of obedience to the law. So they're going to be so obsessed with their obedience to the law that they're going to make that an emphasis. And what will start off as good intentions will eventually turn into obsession and then a priority above God and the law will kind of become a God. It will become their idol. And though they will never worship a pagan god and build an idol, the Torah scrolls that they bring in the synagogue will kind of be an idol. And we see this. This will just keep um, compounding on itself more and more and more that by the time we get to the Pharisees, God himself comes before them and yet they're unwilling to make any room for him because the law is God to them. And most specifically, their interpretation of the law. 
is God. And most of the teachings that you see where Jesus is encountering the Pharisees in the gospel is really an argument over who has the right to interpret the law, Jesus or the Pharisees. Now, Jesus keeps winning like wholesale, like no contest, but they're so committed to their power and their control in the land that they can't concede to his superiority of interpretation and that this idolatry of their interpretation of the law is what's going to cause them to kill Jesus and then reject him. And as the, the epistles say, he becomes a stumbling block for them where they basically trip right into their damnation. So this is what you're going to begin to see the very beginnings of this. The very seedlings of this law will become their new God, so to speak. And so nothing will change with them. They'll replace a lot of the immorality, or they'll replace a lot of the idolatry with their own law interpretations, and many of their immorality will come back in, but the law will then become more and more dominant and more and more oppressive to try to stamp out this, and their relationship with God will begin to dwindle more and more and more, and God will just become an idea that is mostly experienced through rules, a list of rules and do's and don'ts, which we know this as behavior modification or legalism and there's no relationship there ultimately they won't change now jeremiah 31 31 and ezekiel 36 pretty much said that they needed to have a new heart and in fact jeremiah used the idea of circumcising their heart just like moses had said back in deuteronomy and so only when they have a new heart when we get into the prophet joel later he will also emphasize that idea again and then when we get to Zechariah they'll ask him when the exile will be over then Zechariah says only when you repent and of course the implication is they can't repent and change until they're given a new heart and then we now know in hindsight they can't have a new heart until Jesus dies on the cross or until the Holy Spirit comes and we can't get the Holy Spirit until Jesus dies on the cross so all these things pretty much look forward to the idea that these people can't change until the cross these people have no hope of changing into the cross. And so these are kind of like the final two books cementing that idea that something seriously, drastically needs to change within us if there's any hope to come out of spiritual exile. Any hope to come out of spiritual exile. There are four major theological themes as we go through this book. And the first major theological theme is the sovereignty of Yahweh over all. With Daniel, we saw this sovereignty of God over all as we actually saw Daniel going toe-to-toe with the pagan kings. Not only did God show his ability to direct Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah through these pagan territories in this refugee time, but he actually was able to refute these kings as they tried to exercise their power over his chosen people. Then with the dreams and the visions, we saw God showing this by his ability to see the future, anticipate it, and deal with it before it ever come. Yahweh's sovereignty over all kind of looks a little bit different because now we don't actually have Ezra and Nehemiah going toe-to-toe necessarily with these Persian kings, but rather that God is moving these Persian kings to back and support the Israelites as they return to Judah. And so we see God basically moving his own people in conviction to return to Israel or Judah. And then we see him moving these Persian kings to not only support, but in some cases to write them blank checks for the rebuilding of everything. 
This is a much different way that we see God's sovereignty over all as we have seen in the book of Daniel. And so that's a major theme here. And so this, this idea of stir up the spirit, we'll see this twice in Ezra 1 and Ezra 1, 1 and Ezra 1, 5, where it says that the, the spirit stirred their heart for them to return and the spirit stirred the king in order to let them return. A second theme is the restoration of the temple and temple worship. So there is no temple, which means there's no sacrificial system, which means there is no atonement for sins. We talked about this back in Leviticus, but the sacrificial system cannot take away your sins. It cannot pay for your sins. But what the sacrificial system can do is, by faith, it can cover my sins temporarily until a superior sacrifice, Jesus Christ, can come and actually pay for my sins. But without a sacrificial system, there is no way to cover your sins. For the last 70 years, therefore, there's been no atonement of sins at all. And this is a huge predicament for the Jews because God made it very clear that one cannot have a relationship with God without atonement for sins. So there's no real physical way for them to manifest their faith and their repentance that for God's forgiveness and restoration. And so the temple and the first return becomes first and primary importance. And even though the temple is not really mentioned that much in the rest of the book and the second book, which neither it is in most of the First Testament, the idea of the sacrificial system happening is still strongly there as Nehemiah is renewing the covenant with the people and Ezra is renewing the covenant with the people at the end of the book of Nehemiah, which cannot happen without a sacrifice. So that's a strong theme that we see there. And even though God technically did not want a temple, and we talked about this in Samuel and Kings, where David said, hey, I want to build you a temple, and God said, no, I don't want a temple. If I wanted a temple, I would have asked for a temple. And David and Solomon basically said, well, we're going to build a temple anyways. And so they built a temple, and they built it to look very pagan-like, like the Phoenicians would build it. But even though he didn't want that, they still needed a place to encounter God. And by them intentionally stepping away from the tabernacle and letting it fall apart and moving to the temple, even though God didn't want a temple, he still emphasizes the importance of a temple because that's all they have. And that's what they need in order to encounter God and have a sacrificial system. And so this is powerful in the same way that God never wanted you to sin. He never wanted you to walk away. And in all tens of purposes, he can't exist or dwell with you as a sinner. Yet despite that, he still chose to use us to accomplish his will and purpose in creation, even though we were sinful and we were directing our lives in a way that's contrary to God. And even though he didn't want them to have a king, but they insisted on having a king, and so he allowed them to have a king and used that king despite the rebellion because that's who God is. And that's the idea. Like, There's a lot of things that God does not want in this creation. But because of our stubbornness and our insistence on having that thing, he chooses to use it and redeem it despite his lack of desire to wanting it because that's who he is. He's a redeeming God. And so he's going to do the same thing with the temple and really emphasize they need to have a temple because that's what they insist on having instead of a tabernacle, and therefore they need something to have a sacrificial system. 
A third theme is their perseverance in the midst of opposition. These people are going to be pummeled more than they probably ever have in the history of Israel by outside opposition. Everybody in every way that you can imagine is going to be anti them being restored. And they're, they're, they're going to be opposed financially. They're going to be opposed through words. They're going to be opposed through um, sabotage. They're going to be opposed through violence. They're going to be opposed through political maneuvering. All kinds of stuff are going to be constantly at odds, and yet they're going to keep persevering. Sometimes they won't, and the prophets will come and kind of kick them in the rear end, and they'll get back on it again. And sometimes they will by their own faith. But either way, this is a book of um, persist, persisting despite opposition. And so this theme, I think, could be very encouraged for us today, as it just feels like a lot of things are against us anymore. And another one is the presence and power of prayer, and how important that is for things getting accomplished. We have never seen prayer like in these two books, especially Nehemiah. Yes, There are times throughout the First Testament that the people turn to God and ask for help. But most of the time, they fail to really go to God. I mean, if if you've been here, it's like, how many times as we go through this book, David failed to go to God and ask him what to do. The judges failed to go to God and ask him to do. Joshua failed to go to God and ask about the giving. Over and over and over, we just keep seeing this idea. Now, we knew that David was a man of prayer, but we didn't really see him do that that much in his life. There were very few times that we actually saw Daniel dropping everything and actually praying in First and Second Samuel. The Psalms are full of his prayers, but they seem disconnected from his life. Yes, there's some titles that this is the prayer that David prayed while he was on the run from Saul, or this is the prayer that he prayed after his sin with Bathsheba, but we don't see those historically interjected into the historical events. We don't see David doing this and then praying. We don't see David doing that and pray. And so they seem kind of divorced from each other in that sense. And it's hard to see David as a man of prayer and a historical, um, real-life application way when they're kind of just isolated in their own book of Psalms. Then with Daniel, we saw him praying quite a bit, but it still seemed to be kind of like an event happened, and then all by the way, I have this prayer, and then another event happened, and I have this prayer. Now, I'm not knocking any of this. Okay, the, the reality is this is just how it's structured. I'm not saying that these men are inferior men of God or these women were not good women because we don't have every prayer that was recorded. There was probably a lot of prayer that is not recorded in the Bible in any kind of way. But what's so unique about Ezra, especially in Nehemiah, is just those quick like five-second prayers that just came to keep getting interjected every moment. Like he'll be walking along the path and see something and be like, oh God, guide me right now and give me the words. And then the conflict comes. And he sees somebody coming at a distance at him like he's like, oh my gosh, this obviously is not going to turn out well. And he says, God, please guide me. And then the person comes in. And this is one of the very few books where we actually see somebody doing like spur of the moment, quick prayers right in the midst of the conflict or when they see the conflict coming, just intermixed with their daily life. And that sense of pray continually without ceasing as you go through your life. And so that's a unique thing that we see here. That Not that it did not ever exist before, but for whatever reason, God hasn't recorded it and shown it in such a way that we do see that with Nehemiah. And so that's a powerful theme as we go through here. So structured... 
we have the first return under Shesh Bazar. Shesh Bazar is going to lead them. And then when he dies, Zerubbabel is going to keep that going. And they're going to be largely responsible for rebuilding the temple. Then the second return will be led by Ezra. And this is chapter 7 through 10 of the book of Ezra. And the major conflict that he's largely going to deal with is the intermarriage of the Jews. The intermarriage of the Jews. They're going to be intermarrying with foreigners. Then when we get to the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1 through 7, we see the third return led by Nehemiah. And the major conflict that he's going to deal with is the rebuilding of the walls and an intermarrying with foreigners again. He's going to deal with that and a few other minor things as well. And then chapter 7 through 13 is basically the restoration of the Jews. And we're going to see several covenantal renewal ceremonies that will happen here. These two books are divided into four divisions. 